God can take our calamities and he can make conquest out of them. And, and not just victory in our own lives, but through the victories that he brings in our lives, many other people can be, as it says in Genesis 50, 20, to save many people alive. And that salvation, we know today, that salvation is through Christ Jesus our Lord. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. We're going to be in Philippians, the remainder of chapter 1, looking at verses 12 through 30. And I'm going to begin by just uh, reading through a portion of this passage and Verse 12, it says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add to my affliction and to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. In this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And and his closing out, verse 18, twice by saying, I'm rejoicing that Christ is preached. And this is the, uh, one of the themes of the book of Philippians is that of joy. And he often refers and uses words like glad and joy and rejoicing in this epistle. And as we looked at in verse four, where he was thankful upon every remembrance of the church in Philippi, he had this thanksgiving that he had for the church of every remembrance. And we recalled last week about Lydia and her family who got saved, the Philippian jailer and his family who became believers, the slave girl that was freed from the bondage of this demonic possession that had control of her body. But these memories also would have included being stripped and being beaten and being cast into prison. But yet Paul, we looked at last week how he he thanked God upon every remembrance, and, and it ties in with what he said here in verse 4, that these things turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. There was a reason for these things, and 
as Paul's writing this, now it's been 10 to 12 years later, and he has went through a lot in those last 10 to 12 years, and there's been a lot of suffering, and, and the church had heard about the things that Paul had went through, and so their heart was broken. Paul was now in prison in Rome, and they were concerned about him, and Paul's sending a letter back, and it's a joyful letter. A lot of times, if it would be us, perhaps it would be a very uh, woe is me type letter that we would be sending back to the church. But Paul was rejoicing, wanting the church to rejoice along with him for the things that had happened to him. Now, if we want to get a, a great summary, and you can jot down this passage, and I'm sure you've heard it before, of Paul describing the things that he'd went through, the difficulties that he went through. He defined them for us in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-two through 28. But he sums it up in verse 23 by saying that he was more, more in labors, more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prison more frequently, and in death more often. But he said that these were actually for the furtherance. It means a word that means to progress or to advance. And it was for the advancement of the gospel that even though bad things had happened to Paul and that he had suffered greatly and he bore in him the marks of his suffering for Jesus Christ. He said it was advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, in this, I will rejoice. He was rejoicing in that Christ was being preached, even though that he suffered at times as a result of his proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes calamity, and only Jesus, only God can take our calamity and make it a conquest for his glory, for his name. Joseph in the Old Testament had this same attitude when his brothers came to him. Remember, Joseph was thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery. His brothers, his own brothers, were planning on killing him, which they did not. And then after 22 years, they finally discovered that the man who was in charge of Egypt, the second in command there was Joseph himself, and he brought the family down. And they lived in, in the blessings of Egypt and the blessings of God through Joseph for many years. And then after their father died, the brothers came to Joseph and basically said, Joseph, before dad died, he wanted you to know they were trying to butter him up because they thought the only reason that Joseph didn't punish them for the things that they had done to him earlier on was because their dad was still living. And they were afraid that Joseph was going to bring punishment to them. And then Joseph responded with this famous verse of scripture in Genesis 50, 20. And he says, but as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. God can take our calamities and he can make conquest out of them and, and not just victory in our own lives, but through the victories that he brings in our lives, many other people can be, as it says in Genesis fifty twenty, to save many people alive. And that salvation, we know today that salvation is through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, speaking of this in verse 12, says, I want you to know, brethren, the things which have happened to me actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And then he gives us two examples 
of how it had turned out for the furtherance of the gospel or for the advancement of the gospel. As he says, the first example was that the whole palace guard and all that was in the house, all that was in what house? The palace, the house was Caesar's house in Rome. And we know that because he refers to Caesar's household in chapter 4, verse 22. So he's talking about the household of Caesar Nero, this guy who went absolutely crazy according to history, a guy who wasn't doing it at this time, but would in the future burn Christians on stakes just to light the pathways in Rome. It was a guy that would turn against the Christians and would be the one that would be responsible according to tradition for the death of Paul and Peter. And yet, in his own household, and there were those who were being saved, the palace guard and all who were in the house, they saw that Paul's chains were evidence of the gospel of Jesus Christ working in his life, that it wasn't to go against Paul, but they knew that Paul was there because of his work in Christ Jesus. When Paul first got arrested in Jerusalem, it tells us in Acts twenty three eleven that on one of the nights there, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so will you testify for me in Rome. Now, four years later, Paul finally makes it to Rome. And as he's writing this passage, he has not yet stood before Caesar. And so as we're going through chapter one, we get this sense that, you know, he doesn't know the outcome of the events that's before him. All he knows is that as a Roman citizen, he had appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar it was his right that he would stand and be judged. And he didn't know the outcome of it, except that he had already seen that there had been a furtherance of the gospel, that the palace guard and those in the household of Caesar had heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second testimony he gives to the furtherance of the gospel, the advancement of the gospel that had resulted in his arrest and his suffering, found in verse 14, where it says, Most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the second advancement, there were those now that they had courage to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many had courage to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear. Have you ever in your life experienced that in a group, sometimes we can have greater boldness, uh, a greater confidence, and especially in church life, a lot of times that we have this desire, this advancement for Jesus Christ, that if we just go with someone, learn how to share our faith, to give our testimony, as Lance had been taking uh, Matt and Therese most this year on Tuesday night, going out and just witnessing, sharing their faith, visiting people. But through sharing their faith, it made people pray more, read their Bible more, and they had a boldness to share their faith in public uh, with other people. In my own life, it had been many brothers and sisters who had given me boldness as we were worshiping. I was thinking about this, that in verse 14, he says, "...the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains," We're much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. And my cousin, Ken, was uh, one of the main guys in the Christian band I played in for 10 years. And his boldness made me bold. And I, 
I can accredit a lot of the boldness that I have because of those early years that we ministered together in that, that together we were emboldened, we could say, and my friend John Marcourt in Florida or some others that make me bold in faith. I love to get together at pastor's conference and especially in the senior pastor's conference. I have some friends that I always talk to when I go out there. It's our opportunity to get together to see what the Lord's doing. And, and we encourage one another to find out what they're doing in their fellowships and what the Lord is doing. It emboldens us in our faith. The same was true then. The same is true for us today. Now, here's the portion of scripture that has troubled me the most, and it has for the last three weeks, wondering what I was going to say about verses 15 through 18, because Paul goes on to say, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. In this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Now, I'm troubled by this because some preach Christ, and Paul tells us that they preach from envy, from strife, and from selfish ambition and without sincerity. Their motives were totally off, and I can tell you that I really don't want to hang out with believers who preach Christ from envy, from strife, from selfish ambition, and without insincerity. I don't want to be with or hang out with those types of believers, but I do want to hang out with believers who preach Christ in goodwill and in love, and we can take the sincerity from the other and put it upon them. The love there is agape love that he's referring to. Those are the types of believers that I want to hang out with, that I want to minister alongside. But Paul's saying, what then? We would say, well, let's get rid of the one group and really concentrate on the other. And, and Paul said, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I will rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. And it even makes it more difficult, as Paul wrote about selfish ambition in Romans 2.8, and he describes that condition as unrighteous. He says in Romans 2.8, but to those who are self-seeking, it's the same word as selfish ambition, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. And there I should clarify that he's talking about unbelievers. But what about a believer who still has that self-seeking heart? That's what makes things difficult for us. That sincerity, last week we looked at sincere the word meaning that to be without wax, that you could be judged by the sun, that if you recall that if uh, they were making a statue in the old days, and I guess they would still do it today, people try to cover things. In fact, I bought a Chevelle once for my son, and I discovered that they put duct tape on the main um, chassis of this Bible, or Bible, of this body of this car, right where the rear wheels kind of join in there, and they duct taped over the holes and painted them black that it would not be seen. Now, that, that's not sincere, is it? That's what you expect sometimes when you go to a used car dealer. You're not supposed to get that, but sometimes that is what you would expect. And so in, in Paul's day, they would take statues, and if they would have flaws or 
or damage it while they're making them, they would fill it with the wax and then maybe cover it with the paint that it would look like it's perfect. But the sun, to be judged by the sun, would melt the wax and reveal the statue for what it truly was. But this sincerity that we're looking at in this passage refers to having to be without pure motives. There were no pure motives in their hearts. And they even said that by their preaching the gospel, and I don't know how their mind was working, that they could add to Paul's affliction. And eventually it would be very difficult for believers to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because their faith would be challenged. And as I said, soon Caesar would begin to persecute uh, the believers in Jesus Christ. There was this insincerity in this church. There was this bickering. And, and we have this comparison of the church. And it was happening in Paul's day, too, that, you know, they were believers, but they were arguing in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul tells us that in verse 12, they were arguing about who brought them to faith. Some saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas or Peter. I'm of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 3 and 4, Paul said, you are still carnal. For where there is envy and strife and division among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? To say that I am of Paul and another of I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? It was showing the condition of their heart. And, and for half of these, or some, who preached Christ in envy and strife, they were doing so by selfish ambition, without sincerity. They were carnal. They were in the flesh. But Paul said, still I rejoice because... Christ is being preached. The others, as I said, we'd have no problem with those who preach Christ from love, with goodwill. We'd want to hang out with such. We'd want to learn from such that God is working in their life. But he said, whether in pretense or in truth, that he was going to rejoice. Now, the thing that troubles me in the world that we live in and the churches that we see in our world today that there are so many different types of churches and all do not believe the same as we believe. They have some basic foundations, but even sometimes those basic foundations, like the word of God being without error in its original documents, some believe that, you know, part of it is perhaps the word of God, other part of it is probably the words of men. And so they don't believe that the Bible as we have it in these 66 books are the inspired God breathed through the Holy Spirit, through the 40 authors that he used to pin this book to us. They don't believe that it is in totality the inspired word of God. As some believe that only the Bible became the inerrant word of God when King James had his translators translate in 1611. I was arguing this fact with a couple once, and I asked, what about all the Christians before 1611? And they plainly said that they did not have the true inspired word of God. And I'm thinking they originally they had the original documents, the actual letters. How can you say that it wasn't inspired at that point? But it wasn't in their mind until it was translated by the King James and then they would say that if you use anything other than the 1611, and it's got to be a certain brand of translation, not just any King James, it's got to be the right one, then you are without that word. And so we argue about these things. 
Some are churches are steeped in liturgy and tradition, while others reject any form of it. Some teach topically, never taking their people through the Bible, while others like us at Calvary Chapel try to go through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I will confess to you, I'm going to get it done as long as the Lord keeps me here. It's my goal. And I got most of the Bible completed at this point. But to realize, even though we may disagree, and I've, I've come to know that even in different church circumstances, and when I played in the band for 10 years, we go into a lot of different churches, a lot of different churches that worship differently from us, and some churches that even at one time they kicked us out in the middle of a concert because we so shocked them. I look so shocking, don't I? But by the music, by the sound, by the loudness of it, and all, but in those churches, people are coming to faith, and people can be exposed to the truth of God's word just because their pastor may not believe that the Bible is inspired of the word of God, completely true and of the word of God. It doesn't mean that the listeners can't glean the truth out of his messages and be saved. And for those who are being saved when Christ is preached, then I also can say, I will rejoice, yes. I will rejoice. Does the way that we handle hardship turn out for the furtherance of the gospel? Because that's what Paul said was happening with his life. That his hardship was resulting for an advancement of the gospel. Does it turn out for the furtherance of the gospel? Are others encouraged? Are they emboldened by our faith in Jesus in all the circumstances of life? When we are tested, May we learn to be faithful until death, that we might receive from Jesus Christ, as he said to the church of Smyrna, and I will give you the crown of life. To live is Christ. It means that to live, we have opportunity to display our faith in Jesus Christ, to testify of Jesus Christ, to magnify Christ, to bring glory to his name. To die is gain. When we die... Our work on this earth will be done. Or will it? This week, I got a, a text from a friend. He was supposed to be visiting our church today, but he uh, texted me and said, you know, this is Tom, and this is the weekend I was supposed to come up, but it's not going to happen maybe next time. And then he said, this Sunday I'm going to be teaching in our Sunday school class. He basically has a Sunday school class like, I do, going verse by verse. He does that in his church for an adult Sunday school class. He says, I'm going to be in Romans 12, and I'm going to be able to share what your dad said. I don't remember it, but I can hear my dad. Don't tell me that you love me. Show me that you love me. And I text him back, and I, I said, I don't remember my dad saying that. And he came back, and he said he said it in the context of saying that talk is cheap. It's easy to say that we love Jesus, but are we showing through our lives that we actually love Jesus. Now, my dad has been gone for been quite a while. And yet, the words that he preached from a pulpit in Zion maybe 30 years ago are still resonating in someone's life today. You know, that can happen for preachers, but it can happen for us, whether we're a preacher or not. If we're living Christ before others, the things that we are doing not only can magnify Christ now in our lives, but may and especially with our children and our grandchildren, may go on to that 
and we hope that it does, the next generation, the generation that follows them. How are we living? I pray that we are living to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you so much for your word and the things that you have taught us through it. And I pray, Lord, that you would embolden us. And we read about the suffering that's taking places, uh, taking place in other parts of our world and the hardship that many of the churches, such as in Egypt or Iran or Iraq, and how some of these churches have to go underground just to share their faith. China is, is such a place like this. Lord, if they're willing to do such things to, as one pastor, I remember reading that the whole church service in China was met in darkness. The people were in the room, but they were in darkness because they didn't want to be um, found out that the church was there, but the room was crowded with believers. If they can do that in darkness, Lord, what could we do in the light and in, with the air conditioning and heat and everything that you've blessed us with. Lord, may we be more so emboldened to magnify and glorify your name, that we can live a legacy in such a way that we can also say to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray this for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today.